Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Simpoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, June 23rd. Here are some of the stories we are covering this morning. Malawi's Anti-Corruption Bureau says the country's vice president accepted kickbacks from a British Malawian businessman. The best I can do for now, which is what I have decided to do, is to withhold from his office any delegated duties while waiting for the bureau to substantiate its allegations against him. Ethiopia disputes reports of a fuel shortage in the embattled Tigray region. So the myth of a fuel shortage is a TPLF hidden agenda to enhance mobility of its army in preparation for another round of conflict. And Zimbabwe's teachers union and health workers demand payments in U.S. dollars instead of local currency, which has sharply declined in value. Those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. Malawi's president, Lazarus Chakwera, has suspended the powers of his vice president, Solas Chilima, after the country's anti-corruption bureau accused Chilima of accepting kickbacks in return for government contracts. Lameka Masina reports from Blantyre. The anti-corruption bureau findings come a month after Britain's National Crime Agency showed that Chilima was on the list of Malawi government officials receiving kickbacks from British Malawian businessman Zuneth Abdurashid Satam. Satar was arrested in Britain last year for allegedly providing bribes to Malawi government officials to win contracts from Malawi's police service, defense force, and immigration department. Satam denies the accusations. In a televised address Tuesday, President Chakwera suspended the powers of Vice President Tichilima, fired Malawi Police Service Inspector General George Gainja, and suspended two others. He said the four are among 13 government officials the SCB found to have received money from Satam between 2017 and 2021. As such, the best I can do for now, which is what I have decided to do, is to withhold from his office any delegated duties while waiting for the Bureau to substantiate its allegations against him and to make known its course of action in relation to such. The SCB investigation says a total of 53 public officials and 31 individuals from the private sector, civic groups and legal community also received money from Satan between March and October last year. Michael Kayatsa is executive director for the Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation. He says the findings confirm how deeply corruption is entrenched in Malawi. If you look at the report as presented by the president, almost all key you know, government institutions have been mentioned. Talk of the Malawi Police Service, MDF, Financial Intelligence Authority, Ministry of Justice, and even State House. Chirima's press aide, Pirirani Piri, said Chirima will comment on the matter at an opportune time. The United Transformation Movement, which also is the Chirima's political party, says in a statement it is shocked by the development. It said it is reserving further comment until the matter is concluded. Gaiatsa said Chirima should have come out and explained his position on the matter. 
his silence is not helping matters. It's actually worsening people's perception of, of, of him. The public trust is, is, is not there anymore until he speaks up and he tells us what he thinks. In the meantime, some analysts are pushing for the immediate resignations of all those implicated in the ACB probe to pave the way for smooth investigations. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Ethiopia is disputing reports of a fuel shortage in the embattled Tigray region. A European Union official visited Tigray this week and on Tuesday said a lack of fuel is preventing delivery of much-needed humanitarian aid. But a spokeswoman for Ethiopia's prime minister tells VOA that the idea of a fuel shortage in Tigray is a myth. Halima Atman reports from the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. European Union Commissioner for Crisis Management, Janez Lenacic, says Tigrayans have suffered enough due to a continuous aid blockade. Janez said at a news conference in Addis Ababa Tuesday evening, the number of trucks bringing food to the regional capital, Mekele, has almost reached the level necessary to cover basic humanitarian needs of the people of Tigray. However, he says the aid effort needs more fuel so that humanitarian workers can deliver assistance to all in need. There is a need to lift restrictions, especially on the provision of fuel. More fuel is needed because without it, even this food assistance that comes to Mekele cannot reach rural areas where the needs are highest. So now we have a situation where humanitarian warehouses in Mekele are full, but people out there on the the countryside are still hungry. The conflict that began in November 2020 between the Ethiopian federal government and the rebel Tigray People's Liberation Front has forced thousands to the brink of famine and millions more in need of food aid. Janez also urged Prime Minister Ahmed Abi's government to lift financial restrictions, he says, are hampering the provision of basic services, such as payment of salaries to humanitarian workers and hospital employees who have gone without pay for one year. I fail to see the military rationale behind the blockade of uh, electricity, banking uh, services. On the contrary, we believe that these services should be restored uh, without delay because they are primarily destined to the civilian use and the, the lack of these services aggravates the humanitarian situation in that region. However, the Ethiopia federal government denies any blockades, especially on fuel. A spokeswoman for Prime Minister Abi Bilen Siom says data available indicates that last week alone, three fuel tankers carrying over 137,500 litres of fuel arrived in Mekele. Siom says in total, more than 920,000 litres of fuel have been sent to the region since April. So the myth of uh, fuel shortage is a TPLF hidden agenda to enhance mobility of its army in preparation for another round of conflict. Hence, uh, there are no fuel sanctions, uh, quote-unquote, and such uh, claims need to be reviewed with clarity on the reality. On its Twitter account, the Tigray External Affairs Office insists the level of aid being allowed into Tigray does not meet the region's needs. It says between April and early June, just over 770,000 litres of fuel have been allowed into Tigray. In a text message to VOA, TPLF spokesperson Gita Charida accused the Abiy government of misrepresenting facts. He says the fuel shortage in Tigray is as vicious 
as creating unnecessary checkpoints or other obstacles aimed at hindering humanitarian access. Halima Athmani for VA News, Addis Ababa. Zimbabwe's teachers' unions have joined the country's health workers in a strike to demand they be paid in U.S. dollars instead of the local currency, which has sharply declined in value. Most of Zimbabwe's government workers make the equivalent of about $55 a month, a tenth of what they once earned. Columbus Mavunga reports from Harare. Since Monday, doctors and nurses in Zimbabwe's public hospitals have been on strike with some seeing their workstations. They are demanding the government review their salaries, which in some cases, some civil servants get an amount less than $25 a month. Here is Denford Masona, Secretary General of Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association. We are not asking for something that's out of this We just want to live a better life. Some of us are married. Some of us have got kids different disabilities, so which we, we, with the current salary, we cannot afford. So we just find a better way of living, a sustainable way of living for ourselves and for those people who care about it. That's all we want. Patients are being turned away from government-owned hospitals. So are students at public schools as teachers also want a review of their salaries. Surprisingly, at this week's post-cabinet news briefing, the government said nothing about the strike. But Mutulinguwe, Zimbabwe's finance minister, says discussions are taking place behind the scenes. So as government, of course, we are sensitive to the plight of all the civil servants. And we do whatever we can to make sure that we can accommodate uh, some of the demands. So obviously within the, the confines of the test of government, within the budgetary constraints that we face. Zimbabwe's government has struggled with financial issues for years and had to abandon its own dollar in 2009 because of hyperinflation. The new currency, also called the dollar, was introduced in 2019. Alexander Rusero, a politics professor at Africa University in Zimbabwe, blames the government of President Emerson Mnangagwam, who took power from the late Robert Mugabe in 2017. It's a reflection of a government uh, that is confronted with a delicate balance of uh, incompetence and a low opinion of the people. You know, that's where Mnangagwa's government differs from Mugabe's government. Mugabe had some sensitivities, especially when it comes to issues of uh, civil servant salaries. You don't just keep quiet when things are like this, as the president is currently doing. He has degenerated into a mute mode. It's not sustainable going forward. Many Zimbabweans have taken to social media criticizing Munangagwa, who they say is doing no better at taking care of workers than the last colonial ruler, the late Ian Smith. Columbus Mavungam for viewing news, Arare, Zimbabwe. In Uganda, striking public school teachers say they will continue their work stoppage despite a government ultimatum to return to the classroom by Friday or be fired. In a letter to the Teachers' Union, Permanent Secretary for Public Service, Catherine Msinguire, says the strike is illegal. She says while the government is committed to raising the salaries of public servants, the teachers' demands cannot be addressed during the current fiscal year. 
The teachers began their strike last Wednesday after accusing the government of failing to honor its promise to raise their salaries across the board. Instead, the General Secretary of the Uganda National Teachers Union, Philbert Baguma, says the government chose to discriminate by increasing only science teachers' salaries. Authorities say the move would increase the number of science instructors and prevent a brain drain. From Kampala, Baguma tells VOS James Barty that the ultimatum to end the strike is a form of intimidation by the government to cover up its own failures. In the recognition agreement which we signed with the government, there is a provision for intimidation. And it's clear that once a union or members of the union go for industrial action which is protected by law, you are not supposed to intimidate them. The permanent secretary is also quoting the law, Ugandan law, to say that you are obligated to do that. All the laws she is quoting were followed to the dot. We had an industrial action in 2019 where we had given them not to The money we were demanding was according to the collective bargaining agreement. The collective bargaining agreement was running from financial 2018-2019 to 2022-2023. And therefore, the notice we had given was about the contents of the CBA. And this time around, we were resuming the industrial action that we suspended in 2019. So what happened to negotiations in terms of your request that the government should not discriminate between science teachers and art teachers? Has the government made any offer? Because they are beaten at their game and they don't have any satisfactory feedback, that's why they have resorted to intimidation. Because they don't have justification of getting one teacher increasing the salary by over 300 percent and leaving the counterpart to ask me 800,000 they teach the same class teach the same children use the same number of minutes go to the same market go to the same shop and live in the same environment it yeah. is unfortunate for government to get a teacher Again, as we discussed, the students are caught in between the dispute between the teachers and the government. Obviously, the government is solely responsible for its action because they are aware we have been on lockdown and the schools were closed. This is not the time for us not to be teaching. But because of their actions, we have no but to remain at home. In other words, you are saying that the teachers will continue their strike. Yes. Thank you very much. You are welcome, sir. Philbert Bagoma is General Secretary of the Uganda National Teachers Union. He was speaking from Kampala with my colleague, James Barty.
A United Nations study finds 222 million children and adolescents worldwide have had their education disrupted by multiple crises, robbing them of a viable future. The study was produced by Education Cannot Wait, the United Nations Global Fund for Education in Emergencies and Protracted Crisis. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. When Education Cannot Wait was created in 2016, the number of crisis-affected children whose education had been disrupted stood at around 75 million. ECW director Yasmin Sharif says multiple crises over the past six years have boosted the number to a staggering 222 million in more than 40 countries. Conflicts are raging around the world, we know that, but they're also more and more protracted. But the growing record high number of refugees and internally displaced as a result of conflicts and climate-induced disasters have also contributed to this number, as have, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. The study finds 78.2 million children worldwide have dropped out of school entirely. Education experts say those children are unlikely to resume their education, resulting in a detrimental impact on their prospects and earning capacity. Sharif says she has visited countries where most children currently are out of school. She says she has seen what happens to children who are not in school in Mali, Chad, the Central African Republic, South Sudan, and other crisis-ridden countries. When you don't go to school, you are very exposed to being, if you're a boy, forcibly recruited into armed groups, terrorist groups, militia, government groups. And if you're a girl, you you are exposed to becoming part of gender-based violence at home, sexual violence, uh, trafficking, uh, early, uh, early marriages and early childbirth. Sharif says the alarming new data must be a wake-up call for all leaders and policymakers. She says more children are being left behind due to crises. She says the international community must do more to support their educational needs. If it does not respond, she warns the vast crisis will have far-reaching negative impacts for human and economic development. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. A security member of Burkina Faso's Prime Minister recently attacked a journalist at a routine press conference, according to journalist Locke Pabelgum and the Committee to Protect Journalists. Jonathan Rosen is the CPJ's senior African researcher. He tells Ricky Shyrock that although the journalist is not seriously injured, authorities should investigate and hold the security member accountable. Uh, he was at an event that was you know, involved the Prime Minister. It was a government event marking the anniversary of a government office, and he was filming the event for his broadcaster. Seemingly without reason, a bodyguard for the prime minister told him to stop recording, uh, pulled him to the ground, uh, and then instructed him to leave uh, the premises, uh, which he did. This was uh, quite an aggressive um, interaction. Uh, the journalist told us that he wasn't physically injured, but that you know, it, it really the experience really affected him, uh, and that he has decided not to cover the prime minister's activities subsequently because he has ongoing security concerns, in particular with the the bodyguard, the security official, and the way he was treated. He worries that uh, this kind of experience may be repeated if if he goes and covers that. 
What has so far been the reaction, if any, from the Prime Minister's office to the journalist's uh, accusations? Yeah, so on, on his way out, uh, he, he alerted the authorities to, to what had taken place, and the Prime Minister's Director of Communications subsequently called him to apologize, but, you know, no explanation was given. And when CPJ uh, contacted the Prime Minister's office, you know, to follow up on this, they, we were referred to contact uh, another spokesperson about, but weren't given any information on, on who exactly would be able to speak to this issue. So really there's a lot of unanswered questions and those unanswered questions, you know, contribute to the ongoing concern that the journalist has and, uh, you know, contribute to a, a, a sort of chilling signal that has come from some of the, well, the high, one of the highest offices of the, of the government. Is this indicative of a, a bigger problem in terms of freedom of speech in Burkina Faso? There's numerous challenges. Um, the, the authorities there, you know, have, have said in public statements and, and through uh, their actions uh, that, you know, certain subjects are, are off limits for coverage. Uh, coverage should be, uh, should cater to, to the authorities. Um, a press release from March, uh, you know, warned the media against media that might um, be subversive to social cohesion or uh, the morale of the military. Um, journalists have faced restrictions on, you know, physical mobility, uh, where they can go to uh, conduct reporting. Um, and of course, you know, because of the security situation in Burkina, Burkina Faso, there are, uh, you know, serious dangers um, uh, that go along with, with uh, working as a journalist there. That was Jonathan Rosen, senior African researcher for the Committee to Protect Journalists. He was speaking from New York to reporter Ricky Shyrock. The government of Kenya has unveiled the findings of a nationwide airborne geophysical survey and has launched seven other groundbreaking projects. Together, they will provide current and comprehensive geospatial data covering the entire country. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta said that the project, which was implemented with the supervision of several security agencies, will help plan national development. Maureen Jambo reports. The projects were developed by young professionals under the Joint National and Resource Mapping Team. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says that this is the first ever inventory of Kenya's natural resources. The information helps policymakers in a number of areas with information needed to support education and infrastructure. The output maps have already been an aid to very many ministries, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Education in mapping out schools countrywide. They have helped us remove widespread corruption that used to exist. We now know where the schools are, how many students in each school are able to give capitation on the basis of facts. We're also able to identify road reserves, preventing illegal structures that then make it very expensive once road construction begins because land that had been set aside as road reserve has been grabbed. Airborne geographical surveys are used to collect data from air either using a helicopter or a fixed wing plane. The aircraft flies about 100 meters above the surface, capturing the areas that desktop studies have identified as potentially suitable for development. 
Kenya is the first African country to conduct such an extensive survey without tapping into foreign expertise. Kenyatta says the team mapped out a wide range of resources including base metals, coal, gemstones, geothermal spots, forest cover, water bodies, precious metals and rare earth elements. This will not only spur economic growth and create more job opportunities for our young people, but it will also bring about transparency. Well, we know for a very long time our country has been exploited. We know not what they remove from our land. They tell us they're taking them to foreign labs to test. 90% of what they're taking is materials and wealth that we never see back. The Joint National and Resource Mapping Team also developed several online applications, including revenue collection apps. They have helped cut waste and increase transparency and accountability in the government and the private sector. A digital land transactional platform was also developed and has since improved the speed of land operations. Reporting for viewers, Debrick Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, please visit our website at voaafrica.com. You can also connect with us on all social media platforms, including Twitter and Instagram. I'm Douglas Simpuga in Washington, wishing you a great day.